invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me today to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1. Uh, last week we finished the first epistle of Paul to Timothy. Throughout the 39 messages that I preached within that series, we explored the expectations and duties that rest upon a minister, and by proxy of Paul's exhortations unto the church as to how to teach within the church, uh, we understood a number of elements as it related to how the church itself is called to function. So we learned about the church, we learned about the minister, we learned about expectations, we learned about integrity and such. And today we step into the second epistle of Paul to Timothy. Uh, these two books don't necessarily need to be paired together. They were not written one right after another, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, there was probably several years between when the first and the second were written, though written to the same, by the same man to the same man. Uh, however, as we study them together, we perhaps round out the scope of teaching as it relates to these elements of specifically the minister himself and the expectations upon the minister. Naturally, we'll be able to broaden those things. Not only will it be of benefit to you as it relates to you understanding uh, what a minister ought to be and how a minister ought to minister and uh, the various elements of what constitutes a true minister of the gospel, but also as it relates to your own life, to your own faithfulness, to your own integrity. Because as we mentioned so clearly in 1 Timothy, the things that a minister is called to be, with a few exceptions, such as apt to teach, which is a calling unique, the majority of the things a minister is called to be, he is called to be as an example to the rest of the church, so that the rest of the church is called to be that as well, only the minister is one who is called to exemplify it to those who are under his ministry. And so, as with all books, we begin this week with a book sermon. The book sermon is an overview of the entire book, and it's intended to give you that perspective on not just where we are, but where we're going, uh, so that we don't lose the forest for the trees. So that as we're walking through the book, and we're inspecting each little element of the context and the words and such, we don't lose the broader picture of what Paul is doing here because remember, especially with the epistles, these are letters, right? They're epistles. And when you read a letter, you read it as a letter. You read it, you read each word in light of the whole, in light of the fact that this is one set communication that one person is giving to another person to be read. You don't typically get a letter in the mail and start in paragraph three, right? That's not how you read a letter. That, that would not work. You'd be reading things and you'd say, I don't know what they're talking about. Well, of course you don't know what you're talking about because you skipped paragraphs one and two. And so you start in paragraph one, then you go to two, then you go to three, and then probably paragraph three is going to make a little bit more sense. And so we're going to talk about the whole book, the whole letter, and, and understand where we're going, what we want to be seeking within this time. And then, of course, next week we'll, we'll start digging into the nitty-gritty with chapter one verse 1. Let's remember the historical context for this book. Many believe that Paul had a time from around 63 to 66 AD after his imprisonment in Rome when he was able to make one last journey. We know that there was a time from around 60 to 62, two, two, 
to two and a half years where he was under house arrest in Rome. That's where we find ourselves in Philippians, in our evening service, right? In our evening service in Philippians, Paul is under house arrest. He's there in Rome. He's rejoicing in that he's been able to preach the gospel there in Rome, and yet he is hoping for another opportunity to see the people in Philippi again. He's hoping for other opportunities to visit those churches one more time. And as far as we know from Scripture, he receives that opportunity between 63 to 66 AD, where he has a journey until when we would believe to be, he is arrested again in Miletus, where he's taken back to um, Rome. He is tried before Emperor Nero, and then he is um, soon after that martyred. We know various things about this journey as it would relate to 63 to 66 AD. We know he visited Philippi again. We know he visited Ephesus because that's where he left Timothy. We know that he visited the island of Crete because that's where Paul left Titus. And it was after he left Timothy, Timothy in Ephesus that he wrote to Timothy there. It's after he left Titus in Crete that he wrote to Titus there. We know very little else about this time with any sort of fullness of clarity. And then we have 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is written when Paul is again imprisoned, and this time he has no expectation that he's going to get out. He knows his time is short. He recognizes he's coming to the end of his days. And so, as far as the written record is concerned, what we have here are Paul's final words in 2 Timothy. And I'd like you to think about that with me for a moment. If you knew your time was short, what would your final words be and to whom would they be directed? Would they be words of comfort, words of encouragement, seeking to compel, to motivate? Maybe you'd speak to your wife or husband, maybe to your children, maybe your church family. And forgive me if this seems a little overdramatic. I'm not trying to overdramatize this this morning. Paul isn't exactly on his deathbed here, right? It's not like he's dying of some terminal disease. Uh, but how, however, he recognizes that martyrdom is close. Nero was no friend to Christians. By this point in history, he'd already been blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome, which history seems to believe was actually Nero's own doing. The martyrdom had begun. Christian persecution uh, was now at this point beginning to rise to a feverish pitch within the Roman Empire. And these are the final words which God saw fit to inspire written by Paul to Timothy. To this end, these words do have a very final words type of tone, a contemplative tone. Paul thinking back on what was. Paul looking forward to what will be. And Paul desperate and urgent that Timothy would be faithful. Knowing that he was, his journey was, was just about over. His race was just about run. But just because the race is nearly over doesn't mean there's not still so much work to do, right? And this burdened Paul. And Timothy was a part of that answer. Those that Paul had taught who could now carry into the next generation faithfulness. If 1 Timothy was the instruction to a minister and his church regarding how things are to be done in the assembly, the kind 
of man that a pastor ought to be in the assembly. Second Timothy is instruction about how or, or motivation, we might say, for the, the minister to be faithful, to finish the race as strong as he began it. About what it means, our mindset to be established to continue what we've begun until the day that God takes us home. And this letter to Timothy in that ministerial sense also takes on a very personal tone. Timothy was a very special man to Paul. We read about this throughout the epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, For this cause, to the church in Corinth, I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. We see Paul call him here his beloved son. We'll talk more next week about how we know that Timothy was not Paul's blood son. This would be son in the faith. And we'll explain, we'll walk through the scriptures and explain why it is we know that um, in, in the times to come. We also read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. We'll be here in just a couple weeks in our evening service. Paul writes, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may, may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with his father he hath served me in the gospel. Notice there we have this, this um, uh, uh, statement, as a son with his father, uh, recognizing, as, and again we'll establish this more, that, that he is not his son, but rather is as a son. And Paul describes this unique relationship with Timothy here. And that for two reasons, that he had this unique relationship. That among those were, who were, were fellowshipping in ministry with Paul, among those that were under Paul's disposal when he was under house arrest and such, only Timothy, Paul says in Philippians, would naturally care for the state of the Philippian believers, likely implying that Timothy was the only of Paul's ministry fellowship that had known, actually physically met the people in Philippi. Uh, so he knew them face to face. He knew their names. He'd met them. He had a burden for them because of the natural love that, that he had because he had met them. Very similar, we might liken this to the missionaries that you've met. We've had missionaries come and go uh, for a number of years at this church, and I've met all of them, so all of them have that, that place in my heart. But the majority of them, many of you have never met. And so we read the letters, and you get to know them a little bit, but you've never actually had that face-to-face -face contact with them, whereas the missionaries that we've had come through since the time you've been here, uh, maybe there's a deeper connection to them. Uh, they're on your heart a little bit more. They're on your heart a little bit more because those are the ones that you've met, because those are the ones that you've personally interacted with, and so you've been able to, uh, to, to connect with them on that level. Very similar to why it was that Paul would say Timothy had a like-mindedness. But beyond just this, Paul says, all seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. And this goes well beyond just Timothy's familiarity with the Church of Philippi, right? Also to Timothy's unique, like-minded passion and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the ministry that Paul and Timothy shared. Maybe you have a friend that is this way. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a, a, a friend from from a, a time gone by where there is a unique friendship and connection whereby you, you, you have other people that you enjoy, but you say, he and I, she and I, there's a connection there. There's a like-mindedness there. 
There is a uniqueness of fellowship among me and that other person. Paul had that with Timothy. This uniqueness of fellowship between them, a uniqueness of like-mindedness and passion between them. And to this end, Paul would entrust ministry, this particular ministry in Philippians 2, to him alone. And this gives us a measure of insight into the character of Timothy, and even more so into the close and personal relationship that these two men shared in their ministry. This love and this affection is going to be seen prevalently, we might say, throughout the book as Paul exhorts Timothy this final time unto faithfulness. And we see this same affection in the opening lines of the book. So you're there in first, uh, Second Timothy. We'll be walking through the book. We're not going to hit every verse, obviously. That's for us to start doing next week. But as we begin Second Timothy, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We find the following, uh, uh, we, we find this um, introduction here, Paul speaking to Timothy and, and calling him my dearly beloved son, recognizing that relationship. And then following this introduction, the letter very quickly gives way to exhortation unto Timothy to be faithful to his calling. Take note of that word faithfulness. That really is the underlying concept that we're going to find throughout this book. Be faithful. Be faithful. So we read in verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. So Paul tells us his purpose statement here, that he might put Timothy in remembrance and stir up the gift of God in him. This is what Paul wants to do here. I want to put you in remembrance and I want to stir up the gift of God in you. The words of Paul in this book are intended to be motivational, to remind Timothy what he was all about, why he did what he did, and how he was supposed to go about doing it. And this is an important thing for anyone to do from time to time, isn't it? It's important for us. As a parent, I need a periodic reminder about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Because it gets tiring, doesn't it? And you can get you can get distracted and being a parent is all about consistency and you can start to lose a little of that as you wear down and sometimes we need something to remind us exactly why we do it and what we're doing and, and the way in which we need to do it and we need a little pick-me-up every once in a while. We need this in any number area, uh, of areas of life. As a husband, I need a periodic reminder about the nature of my privilege and responsibility pertaining to my wife. As believers, we need periodic reminders. As a matter of fact, that's what we do here, right? We come together and we fellowship and we pray and we sing, and then you hear the word of God, and, and by God's grace, at least from time to time, uh, there is within the message a, a reminder to shore up that which might be lacking. To, to take inventory of my own life and where I'm doing well and where perhaps I'm not doing very well so that I can, I can sand smooth those rough edges or I can get something back up to snuff that maybe had fallen short through time and circumstance because you know what? We're also human, aren't we? And because we're human, we're going to get tired and we're going to fall short and we're going to get distracted and these things are going to happen and, and, and God knows that. We sang about that this morning. Does Jesus care? He does care. Does he know? He knows. And yet we come together so that iron may sharpen iron, so that we 
when our edge gets a little blunted, can be sharpened by the ones that we love. Life can become very routine, can't it? Sometimes even monotonous. I can lose an appreciation for what I'm doing or why I'm doing it and end up operating just out of habit. And when I operate in this manner, there cannot fail to be a measure of complacency that creeps into my life. And when I'm being complacent, I will never be as effective as I otherwise could be and perhaps should be in the tasks unto which God has called me. It's easy enough for me to follow a template and to put messages together. And I can get a little complacent and the messages lose their, their zest and they lose their zeal and they lose their power because I'm just kind of going through the motions and it's from time to time I need a pick-me-up. Maybe it's that way with you and church or you and uh, memorization or you and prayer or you and Bible reading that from time to time things can just become, it's not that you stopped doing it, but maybe you stopped the reason why you're doing it. Maybe you got complacent. Maybe you get lazy. Maybe you get rote and routine and you just need something to remind you sometimes about why you're doing what you're doing, reminding you to be faithful. If I may put it another way, when I'm being complacent, I'm at risk of falling short of the exhortation of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.31. That whether therefore I eat or drink or whatsoever I do, I do all to the glory of God. That I can start to just do things because it's what I do and I fail to remember that what I'm doing I need to do to God's glory. So Paul is seeking unto two ends in this book. First, to call Timothy into a remembrance of his calling. And second, to stir up that calling that is within him. Remember the calling you have and then be stirred up in that calling unto action, unto, uh, unto a reinvigoration. Can we use the word revival? Unto a revival of those sentiments, unto a revival of those desires, unto a revival of that passion that once drove him and that is necessary to, to find again. And so everything we find in this epistle will work toward one or both of those ends. And Paul begins to stir Timothy up by stirring him unto boldness. We read in verses 7 and the first half of verse 8, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And he continues from there. Uh, a spirit of ministerial fear does not come from God. As the minister is to lay hold on righteousness and holiness, which we talked about in 1 Timothy. As the minister is to make full proof of his calling, there's simply no place in his life, in the life of a properly adjusted minister, and really, as we'll extend this, of course, when we get there, a properly adjusted believer, to allow a timid spirit to silence him or alter his relationship with Christ in order to conform itself to some expectation or pressure found within the world's system. So Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the ministry. He'll go on to say, don't be ashamed of me. And that because ministers are called men of God unto ministry. Now, all who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior are the called, right, as it relates into salvation. The doctrine of ele election speaks not to salvation in the Bible. The doctrine of election speaks to purpose in the Bible, right? Whenever you see the concepts of election, whether it's the word elect or whether it's that concept of being predestinated or whether it's the concept of being called, what you will always find consistently within the scriptures is that those statements of election or calling or predestination are unto a purpose, not unto a, a state. 
that the moment we exercise our will to receive the finished work of Jesus Christ, responding to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we enter into a relationship with God through Christ, and thus we are ushered into a calling. We are ushered into an election. We are thus, at that point, predestinated unto a particular end by virtue of our decision to enter into Christ. So that Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto what? Elect unto obedience in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says grace unto you and peace as Peter is, is introducing uh, his own epistle there in 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice that Peter says that we are elect. We are elect unto, not salvation. We are elect unto obedience as those who are saved. We see a similar statement by Paul at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice Paul also says that we, the church, have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless that those who are in Christ, that he has chosen we who are in him, chosen us in him, unto the adoption of sons, unto this holy and blameless destination, predestinated unto the fullness of Christ in us, predestinated to be holy and without blame before God one day. Neither of these passages, nor if you study it, will any, either in the Old or the New Testament, imply that God chooses who will and will not be saved outside of man's own volition. And we'll very likely focus on this particularly in a message in the coming weeks. And so we have a calling by virtue of our salvation. Paul is deliberate in reminding Timothy that as a minister, he has a separate calling. You and I both share the calling of salvation. The calling to follow the Lord, that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. The calling unto that manner of living. And then the minister is given another calling. Beyond just that of the believer, a calling as it relates to his stewardship of the body of Christ, of the, of the church. And the first element of this calling, Paul says, you've got to be bold. You've got to stand up. You've got to be willing even in the face of suffering, even in the face of danger, even in the face of change, to stand, not have the spirit of fear, which is not from God, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Again, we'll talk more about that when we get there. So Paul would tell Timothy in chapter 1, verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul said, I, I'm suffering. He recognizes that martyrdom is around the corner, but he says, I'm not ashamed. He understands the reward of being faithful to that calling. And this is something else that we're going to see throughout the epistle. Paul is using himself as an example of faithfulness, not in a pride way. He's not saying, look at me, I'm, I'm great. As a matter of fact, when we study Philippians, as we've been doing in Sunday night, we know that Paul will say in Philippians 3, not as though I've attained. Paul will call himself the chief of sinners. 
We know that Paul is not saying this in pride, but the fact of the matter is, when you are discipling someone, you better hope that your life can be the example of that discipleship. I can sit down all day and I can open the Bible and tell you what the Bible says as I'm discipling you, but you know what helps you even more is when you see in me an example, right? So Paul's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the fact that he has been an example of faithfulness. That's a good thing. He says, Paul, uh, Timothy, be like me. Be faithful as I've been faithful. That Timothy might follow the example of Paul in faithfulness as he followed him in ministry. And so Paul says in that respect, he says, be ready to suffer, but remember that that suffering won't be in vain. Remember, persecution is gearing up in the empire at this time. So suffering will become a common thing among Christians for the next, for the next, some time, next several generations. Much to the rather, however, Paul says, be ready to suffer knowing that there's coming a day when whatever we suffer in this life for the cross will be rewarded and that manyfold. It's not aimless suffering. It's not empty suffering. It's a recognition that we're going to stand for the truth today in light of the promises of tomorrow. And that carries us into chapter 2, where Paul exhorts Timothy thus, in verses 1 and 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. What I've told you, you tell others, Paul says to Timothy. Find, find faithful men, those who can and are willing to teach others, and teach them what I've taught you, so that then they can teach others what you have taught them. Naturally, we know that this is not just informational, but this is by example. Show others how to follow Christ. Teach others what it means to follow Christ. Teach others the doctrines of Christ that they may teach others, that they may teach others. And this is the essence of the church. Jesus would say, Go ye therefore, teach all nations. Make disciples. This is what we do. We learn so that we may teach others that they may teach others, that they may teach others, that the church may continue, that the church may grow, that the church may be strong. To this end, Paul exhorts Timothy to endure hardness, a passage we considered not long ago in our Philippians series, to remain separated, not entangling himself with the things of this life, the things that will distract him from his calling as a minister, from the calling he's been given. In short, once again, Timothy, be faithful. Be faithful for God's sake. Also be faithful for the sake of those who look up to you. I'm a minister of the gospel. Not only uh, do I have a responsibility to my wife and to my children, I have a responsibility to you. And yet, many of us have responsibilities, don't we? As an older sibling, you have a responsibility to your younger siblings who may be looking at you, looking up to you, looking for someone to lead so that they can follow. As a parent, you have children who might be looking to you, looking up to you, someone to lead that they may follow. And the exhortation, be faithful. Be faithful for God's sake. Be faithful for the sake of those who are looking to you as an example of sound doctrine. So we read chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation 
which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul seeks unto the great prize for his faithfulness. And for this prize, Timothy is called to labor. Paul says, I invested into you that you may reap the rewards of eternal life. You invest in others that they may reap the rewards, rewards of eternal life. Not just being born again, but all the fullness of the rewards that are in Christ. Be faithful, Paul says, that others may learn to be faithful, that they too may earn the prize. So Paul reminds him, it is a faithful saying, verses 11 through 13 of 2 Timothy 2, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. God is who he is. God's plan is what it is. And it is ours either to jump into the flow of what God is doing and be rewarded or to rebel against that flow and to suffer the consequences. Now, if Timothy is to be this teacher, then it is essential that he know how to teach and what to teach. So as Paul progresses through his exhortation, he does so in this manner in verses 14 and 15. He says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them there, uh, before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of hearers, of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. No minister can give answers to others that he does not have himself. I can't give you answers if I have no answers. I can't tell you what the Bible says if I don't know what the Bible says. I can't exhort you unto faithfulness and be an example of that if I'm not faithful. I cannot keep God's people focused if I am unfocused. Now, you may be able to stay focused when I'm unfocused. You may be able to learn when I don't know, but it's not going to be because of me. And that's my commission. That's my calling. That's my responsibility. To this end, it is an important part of faithfulness in ministry that the minister be faithful to teach the Word of God and to teach it accurately. Not because, as Paul would go on, failure to do so in any way threatens the truths of God's Word. God's Word will stand whether I abuse them or whether I'm faithful to them. God's Word is God's Word. Truth is truth. Truth does not need me. Truth is self-validating. But rather because it is the minister's commission unto faithfulness, and to fall short of this commission is to fall short of faithfulness, the minister must not get distracted on the foolish or on the worldly or on the profane or on the carnal, but remain focused upon the gentle, careful teaching and the example of said teaching in his life. This carries on into chapter 3. Paul says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. On the heels of this call for holiness... On the heels of this call for obedience and faithfulness, careful teaching comes another reminder from Paul of just why it is so important. As history progresses, as history works its way toward the end of days, Paul says times will become very perilous, especially for the believer. Now, on the short term, Paul was right about this too. The Christianity in Paul's day, as Paul was about to be martyred, was stepping into a time of tremendous peril of tremendous suffering, of tremendous death and martyrdom and, 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 and 
hiding and just terrible things that the Christians in the next several generations would have to go through for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But Paul is also looking beyond as he looks toward the end of those end days. He says times will be very perilous, especially for the believer. Far from the modernist or the communist or the neo-evangelical view of the world, we find Paul warning that things will continue to get worse and worse, not as those other philosophies would espouse, that history is just going to, people are going to keep getting better and better. History has a natural ebb and flow to it, doesn't it? Of good and bad, of highs and lows. History is not really like a straight line, it's more like a roller coaster. It's not a, 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 a progressive upward or progressive downward, it's ups and downs and ups and downs because humans are fickle, because power ebbs and flows, because nations rise and fall. These things come and go, and yet what history has also taught us is that while there's little doubt that we live in one of the most prosperous ages of the world right now, that history is ever known in this time, some of the lowest poverty rates the world has ever seen in these days, we have also lived through one of the bloodiest centuries on record. From the two world wars with their carnage and attempted genocide through to then the uh, hundred million or so civilians that can be chalked up dead based upon communist overthrows and dictators throughout the last century. There is still certainly a tremendous amount of peril in this world, isn't there? Tremendous amount of evil. And all of these things have been in the context of a people willing to hear. Throughout the last hundred years, there has been a general receptivity nonetheless to the gospel. But Paul says that those days are going to slowly decay, where people will not only still be their evil selves and evil will continue to, to have its day, but where people will stop being willing to hear the truth. They'll maintain a form of godliness, but they will fully deny the power of the God that undergirds it. And this exhortation is essential motivation for the minister. The minister must be faithful because faithfulness brings reward. The minister must be faithful because God's people need to learn and grow. That's what we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But the minister must be faithful because the, there's coming a day when no matter how loud the minister cries, no one will hear. And because that day is coming, because those days do come, the, 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 the last of those days will not be the first of those days, right? There have been other times where ministers have stood and cried and preached and taught and no one would listen. And because those days do come when no one will hear, in those days where there is receptivity, the minister must be faithful. Those are the days we must take advantage of. We pray every week for this nation. We do so in obedience to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we would pray for our leaders. We pray for our leaders every week here for that reason. And we pray that God would preserve the freedoms that we hold dear because we know that there's coming a day when these freedoms will not be here anymore. We know it. History, history demands it, right? History demands it. That there's coming a day where these things will pass off the scene. Where the freedoms that we hold dear will no longer be here. 
We will seek to them and maintain them for as long as we can. We thank the Lord for every moment we have. But that's the thing. In these days where we have the freedom, we must be faithful. Because there's going to be a day where our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or, or, or their children's children may not have those and they'll say, wow, what would it be like to have those? Imagine what could, we, we could have gotten done if we had the freedom to speak. Imagine how many more people could get saved if we could go out and tell people we're Christians and show them what that is without fear of being martyred. We have that uniquely in history. Be faithful. Paul contrasts this evil day and the people of that day with Timothy's commission. Verses 13 and 14, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Evil men, they will continue. They will wax worse and worse. Spiritual deceptions will continue. They will wax worse and worse. But there isn't anything that I can necessarily do about the flow of history unless God would see fit to change the times and the seasons through my ministry. But that's not under my control. But what is under my control is whether or not I am faithful. Sometimes my children get to bickering. One of them, you know, the, 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 the retaliator always gets caught, right? So one person does something, hits, hits sister, hits brother. And then when brother or sister hits back, that's the, one, that's the one that gets caught. Because by that point, mom and dad are looking. The first hit, you didn't actually see. The second hit's the one you see. And they say, well, but so-and-so did something to me first. But so-and-so is teasing me. But so-and-so is saying this. And one of the natural responses is, you cannot control what people do to you. You can only control how you respond to them, right? You have no control over what a person says to you, over what a person does to you. You have every bit of control over how you respond to them. I have no control over history. I have no control over the ears of the people, who will hear and who will not hear. But I do have control over whether or not I'm going to be faithful to what God has called me to do. That's what I do have control over. And this carries us into the final set of instructions in chapter 4 where faithfulness remains key. Verses 1 and 2, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Thus the charge and the call and the motivation, preach it. Preach it in season when things are well. Preach it out of season when things are not. When people are listening, preach. When people aren't listening, preach. When people are in the seats, preach. When people aren't in the seats, preach. Be faithful. Paul has been faithful. Paul has been faithful whether people have received or have not. He's gone into cities and he's seen revivals. He's gone into other cities and he's left with 40 minus 1 lashings. He's left having been stoned and thrown out of the city and left for dead. He's seen it both ways. Paul says that's the way it goes, but be faithful. Paul is calling Timothy to be faithful so that, and then that Timothy would teach the next generation to be faithful. And through this, we trace the scarlet cord, not just of belief, but the cord of faithfulness, faithful ministers, faithful Christians from generation to generation. 
Someone told you. And the person who told you had been told by someone. And the person who told them had been told by someone. All the way back to the very ministry of Jesus Christ himself. We, we, we live a legacy. We'll talk more about that later. And thus we're called to, to, to carry the baton for this generation and then to pass it on to the next. So Paul gives confidence in verses 6 through 8 of himself. He says, for, now, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. It's not just his crown. Paul says, all that are faithful. It's theirs as well. It was this confidence that Paul wanted Timothy to have. To stir up the gift that was in him. To remember what he'd been called to do. To be motivated, a renewed motivation to serve the Lord with distinction, with faithfulness, with gladness. Paul brings Timothy into this remembrance. And as Paul reflects upon finishing his own course, he expresses the depth of his desire that Timothy would do the same. He gives this exhortation in contrast to others, as we'll see when we get there. He's going to list the names of those who had begun well but who faltered, who gave up, who fell off of the path, who quit the race. He speaks of Demas in chapter 4, verse 10, who had forsaken Paul, having loved this present world. He speaks of Alexander the coppersmith, who had done much evil unto him. And yet for each unfaithful man or woman that Paul cites, those that had fallen off the way, those that had yielded the distinctions, there were those who had run the course with patience. Mark, interestingly enough, the same Mark that Paul and Barnabas split over because Paul said, Mark left us in our journey. We, I will not serve with him again. Mark now said, uh, Paul now says, Mark is faithful. Mark got back on the journey. He, he got back up and he started running again. Tychicus, Priscilla, and Aquila, the house of Onesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Linus, Claudia. Listing of names of those who had been faithful, who had served the Lord in churches around the world. And so it is for us as well. To this end, I carry only one application into our broad book sermon today. And the application is simple, direct. It's been a, permeated the book, permeated this message. Simply this, be faithful, Christian. As we pan over the scope of biblical revelation, the word faithfulness is one that bubbles up to the top of our importance. God has never looked for the man of greatest ability. God has never looked for the man of greatest wealth. God has never looked for the man of greatest strength. God has never looked for the great orators to be his frontline ministers. There have been some, but that's not what God has looked for. What God has looked for the thing that connects every man who God has used is faithfulness. When Aaron and Miriam murmured against their brother Moses because of the Ethiopian woman he had married, 
God descended in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the door of the tabernacle and he spoke to Aaron and Miriam and he told them this in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? God says there are any number of prophets that God may or may not make himself known unto, but Moses, the reason why God was able to have such a uniquely personal relationship with Moses and chose Moses out of all the other men and women to do what God did with Moses, it's not because he was the most capable, although from history we might believe he was. It was because he was the most faithful. You want to be used of God? You don't have to be the best looking person. You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the most capable person. You don't have to have all of the material, earthly, temporal attributes and spades. You want to be used of God? Be faithful. Determined to be faithful. Take what the Lord has given you and use it. Cultivate it. Grow in it. Be faithful. That's what God needs. That's what God wants. That's what God uses. He uses faithfulness. Keep putting one foot in front of the other, spiritually speaking. Turn your thoughts toward the desire and determination to be consistent in doing what is right, to be spiritually stable, to have a sound mind. May this become our goal throughout this series. You don't need to shoot for the spiritual stars in this series. Push yourself to become better and better and better and better. There are times for that. Can you be faithful? Can you be steady to align yourself with the calling that the Lord has given you? Keep your focus on it and keep walking. Spouse, parent, sibling, child, employee, employer, church member, whatever realms of life God has called you to in himself, are you faithful? Are you being faithful? Live them out to God's glory. And in doing so, we not only earn the rewards of those who are faithful in the Lord, the crown of rejoicing, but we set an example by which we teach others. My parents aren't perfect. Your parents weren't either. Your pastor is not perfect. And he's never going to be. But when those who look up to us see a measure of faithfulness, that you're working, that you, that you know the Bible, that you believe the Bible, they, they know you're not going to be perfect. Your children know you're not going to be perfect. I hope you all know I'm not going to be perfect. But am I faithful? Am I setting an example? We set an example, we teach others, and in doing so, we pass along this faith from generation to generation so that as our children see our faithfulness, they too will learn to be faithful. And maybe they're more gifted than we are, 
And maybe they're more disciplined than we are. And maybe, just maybe, we'll have the privilege and blessing of seeing them surpass us in accomplishment for the Lord. But it begins with them learning how to be faithful, to love the Lord, to seek unto His calling in their lives. And so to meet the perilous days in which we live with the spiritual fortitude and legacy to endure. We're in spiritually perilous days. We're stepping into them. If you read the news, you know that. We need to be faithful. We need to be determined to be faithful. To bring our children into that faithfulness and our children's children into that as well. So let's set our minds upon this end. To be determined to have our hearts ready, yielded, that we may follow in the footsteps of Paul and Timothy after him and the generation to generations of those who have been faithful to run our race with patience, to finish our course well, and to keep the faith. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.